Coming up today, why NFT marketplace OpenSea can't win, and we look at the wild, woolly world of mammoth patents. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Natasha Bernal. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Jan Volpicelli. Hello. This was the week when Amazon and Visa resolved a long-running dispute over credit card fees. The online retailer had threatened to block Visa credit cards in the UK due to fees charged by Visa to process payments. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg promoted former UK politician Nick Clegg to be president of global affairs this week, making him responsible for steering Facebook through tough global regulatory challenges. The move puts Clegg at the same level as Zuckerberg and COO Sheryl Sandberg. UK Home Secretary Priti Patel was reported to be mulling the introduction of new rules that would force online platforms to monitor legal but harmful content. Uh, as part of the online safety bill. We don't know what that means yet, but it might cover stuff like online abuse or glamorization of self-harm and eating disorders. Tech companies are, of course, worried. And finally, it was the week when we found out that our brain's mental processing speed doesn't slow down until we reach the age of 60. So lots of previous studies concluded that our mental processing basically peaks at age 20 and then declines from that point. But this new work, which is based on data from more than a million people, say that this perceived slowdown in speed could actually be down to people becoming more cautious as they get older. So that's good news for all of us under the age of 60. Sample size of one, I'm definitely feeling like I'm in a decline at the moment. Um, I question the results of this study. Do you do a lot of exercise every day, James? Uh, not so much this week, um, as uh, people listening might be able to tell. I'm losing my voice. Uh, so if you don't like the sound of me um, speaking as if I am 60, then <laughs> you might want to skip this episode. Uh, let's plough on regardless. I'll try and keep my voice as best I can. Natasha, what did you learn this week? All right. Did you know that most languages have their own version of it's all Greek to me? So you know how you use that in, in English to express that it's difficult to understand what someone means? Well, it's actually something that other people around the world and other places use, but they pick a different language. So the most popular language picked tends to be Chinese, not Greek. So in Spanish, they say eso suena chino, which means that sounds Chinese. In Estonian, it's si on nagu hinakil, which is it's like Chinese. And it's the same in France, Israel, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland. And now you might be wondering, what do they say in Greek? They obviously won't say it's Greek. It sounds like Greek to me. In Greece, they say it sounds like Chinese to me, right? Which is the same as everyone else, right? But in China, they say that sounds like birds. So you're welcome. That's what I've been doing. That's my big investigation. Very good. Um, you, you probably already know this, Natasha, but there's a similar, um, similar variety in the international versions of It's Raining Cats and Dogs. <gasps> really? What do they say? Yeah, yeah. It's raining what? Uh, so in Flemish Dutch, it's raining kittens. Oh, um, that's sweet. Yeah. Uh, in French, it can be, it's raining like a peeing cow. <laughs> Uh, in Greek, it's raining chair legs. For chair some legs. Reason. 
chair legs. Yep. That's in Italian, chair legs. it's buckets. Oh, buckets. I mean, yeah, it's buckets. Right? It's water. Yeah. That's sensible. Um, in uh, the version of Spanish spoken in Colombia, it's raining husbands. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's raining men, right? <laughs> yes, but specifically married men. <laughs> so there's not even that useful. All right, Jan, Savers, what did you learn this week? This week I learned about the biggest strawberry ever. It was picked in Israel last week by a farmer called Chai Ariel. It weighs um, 289 grams. It is 18 centimeters long and 34 centimeters in circumference. So this uh, it's reminds- also in the Wait, sorry. This re- sorry to interrupt, Jan, but this reminds me of an like. Didn't we have another fruit on a couple of years ago? Like there was, there I, was. Do you guys remember? Like there was another fruit, and was it a plum or something? And then it was like, was it also in Israel? Maybe. What is it about Israel, Jan, that makes fruit so big? I mean, they have a very efficient irrigation system, right? <laughs> so I suppose okay. that helps. No, uh, I have no idea. What I'm really curious about really is I mean, whether it, t- it tastes different at all. That's what I'm we said sure, about right? the last one. That's what right. we said about the last the one. Question. Is it good? <laughs> is it good or is it not good? It might just be full of water. Matt, well, I see you waving. I'm just looking at the pictures of this strawberry because I thought I want to get a load of this strawberry and Honestly, it's a horrible looking strawberry. It's like it, purple, like puce. It, yeah, it's kind it's of a puce. It's dark, I think, because it's been frozen. It's a really weird shape. I mean, uh, really, it looks like seven strawberries stuck together. But I would not. I would not want to eat that. I think it'd be, it'd be pretty rank, actually. That's all right. I don't think you'd be allowed to eat it. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's a <laughs> price for wins. strawberry you're eating there. <laughs> Good, Look, but don't eat. Well. All right, so this week, Jan has been looking into OpenSea, which has become the de facto marketplace to buy and sell NFTs. But it's had some complicated issues to grapple with. Jan, can you tell us some more? Yes, I would say that OpenSea is an interesting case study because it is one of the companies that are at the center of the so-called Web3 revolution. So this kind of decentralized version of the web, which is populated with a lot of cryptocurrency and other crypto assets, such as NFTs, right? Non-fungible tokens, which are used as kind of stand-ins for art pieces, digital objects, and so forth. And OpenSea is by far the most known and largest marketplace for it, where to buy that. And that is, of course, how it started. It started as a Web3 um platform but now it is growing up and it has been partnering with um, Twitter for instance it has a special partnership with Twitter which allows users to verify their profile pictures if they are NFTs Uh, it has raised a lot of funding from uh, VCs and of course that change is going to be painful in a way because this company is still styling itself as a as a bastion of the decentralized ethics of Web3, but now it's doing a lot of um, things, uh, making a lot of moves, taking a lot of steps that put it squarely in the kind of more traditional technology company domain. And that comes with a lot of um, obligations, for instance, moderation, content moderation, which is becoming an increasingly important matter for OpenSea. And so now that's essentially where it stays. It's like, it's in the balance. It doesn't really know whether it's a Web3 or a Web2 platform, and there's backlash from both sides. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting situation, right? Because OpenSea is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. It's got these sort of very high profile partnerships. Um, it's kind of seen as the biggest marketplace and that it should be controlling the quality on its site. Yet it's kind of plagued with a load of sort of scammy, you know, copycat NFTs on its site. You know, artists have been for quite a while protesting about, you know, seeing their art on there uh, without their permission. Um, it, it's got grown really, really quickly, very, very suddenly, right? And one of the big issues it's facing is as it cracks down on some of that activity that it considers fraudulent and scammy to become more legitimate in the eyes of its investors, it's facing a big backlash, as you said, from from crypto hardliners who supported its growth in the first place. And they're saying that the actions that OpenSea is taking to try and stop that infinite amount of fake NFTs on its site and all the scams that are associated with it are, are making it into a sensor of Web3. And that's something that you kind of hinted at, but I feel is quite an important point because they're arguing that this very action of censorship goes against the principles of Web3 which is that there would be no powerful platforms controlling what people decided to do on it. So what exactly is is OpenSea doing to, to, to the platform and what is going on? What is that backlash looking like? I mean, some people would say it is doing the bare minimum, right? Because there are a lot of plagiarized NFTs or scammy NFTs or just NFTs that have been harvested uh, whose images have been harvested by bots on Twitter or on any other platform and then transformed into NFTs uh, by a very convenient free NFT minting function OpenSea has activated. So people will uh, steal a lot of images and create a lot of NFTs, paying no cost and hoping to sell them. And of course, if the artists behind the plagiarized image reach out to uh, OpenSea, it will have to remove it, uh, even if it's not very quick at doing that. Uh, but there has been a recent case that I think illustrates very well the tension between uh, these two worlds we have been describing. So um, you might have heard about the Bored Ape Yacht Club, uh, or Bored Apes in general. So there's little pictures, these little cartoon images of uh, Bored Apes, obviously, uh, which are NFTs, uh, which are popular with the crypto crowd and even with some Hollywood celebrities, I think. And uh, there have been innumerable copycats uh, and a very famous uh, instantiation of such copycattery was the uh, something called uh, Funky Apes, Funky Ape, um, Your Club, and then another uh, very similar project called uh, Funky Ape, <laughs> your club again, but with a different acronym so that uh, the name was uh, fake. Uh, and so these two projects, very similar, uh, were essentially just flipped version of Bored Apes. They just mirror image, like they took them, flipped them, I suppose using Photoshop, and then were sold as NFTs. But they claim to be parody or kind of uh, musing, sculptural reflections of what, uh, on, on NFT culture. Still, eventually, uh, OpenSea removed the collections, is both um, fake and fake, if you wish. Uh, but there was a lot of backlash because, uh, in a way, that was seen as impinging on freedom of satire, freedom of parody, freedom of artistic reinterpretation. Uh, and so that's essentially it, right? So, um, what do you have to do? What, 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 how do you actually carry out moderation without? angering people in Web3 who think that gatekeepers are just bad, 
and the gatekeepers should be removed from our Web3 world. Uh, and that's just, like I say, one element of why OpenSea is clashing with its wider community. So the other problem with OpenSea is that it is really, uh, its structure is a very traditional company. So it raises, for instance, uh, money from, from VCs, from venture capitalists, to equity. And that's also seen as contrary to the ethos of Web3. Theoretically, a Web3 company should be owned by its users. It's a so-called decentralized autonomous organization. Should The company should create a token, should give it to its users, and those users will use those tokens to possibly vote on decisions on what happens on the platform, and then actually earn a kind of, uh, some kind of dividends on the platform because they and so that's that's what happened, and that's also angered a lot of the Web3 crowd. And there was a rival project recently launched called LuxRare, which like explicitly uh, styled itself as an alternative to OpenSea to the point that it tried to lure in OpenSea customers on its own platform by giving them free, like yeah, free LuxRare tokens. And so that's essentially just another element of that uh, Web 2, if you wish, versus Web 3 um, identity crisis OpenSea is grappling with. Yeah, you've, you've also got the minting, right? You've got the, the minting curb too, which was a big part of what angered people. Absolutely. So as we said, uh, the, f the feature of minting NFTs free of charge, so you just can go on OpenSea and mint whatever you like, uh, transform any image into an NFT, is what is driving forward the scammery, the plagiarism, the skullduggery, and the chicanery. Uh, the problem is, of course, um, when OpenSea tried to take some steps against it, like uh, limiting the number of free uh, NFTs that can be minted, I think to 250, which is not, it's not a little, it's not quite a lot. Uh, there was, again, a lot of backlash. Uh, to the point that the day after, uh, OpenSea had to backtrack on that. Uh, but in the backtracking Twitter thread, it said, well, actually, we know that 80% of um, the NFTs minted through the free mint function are usually scams or, plagiar or plagiarized art. So <laughs> while backtracking, it confirmed that this feature was problematic. And again, it was kind of hanging there between being catering to the Web3 uh, scammy, if you wish, in some cases, crowd and the kind of responsible crowd. Eventually, in that case, actually, the scammy riffraff won over. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you can sort of see the scale of the problem in just the figures that they provided, right? Just the amount of fake stuff that's out there. It's still these crackdowns, right, on, on these things, whether it's sort of them saying, you know, you can't mint as much as you want. Um, you you have to follow the rules. You know we're going to be looking for the platform. You, you'd think that that sort of thing would help legitimate artists, that that would appease them a little bit. But but the interesting thing here um, is that as OpenSea moves to be a more mainstream business and you know act as as more of a responsible 
player, I suppose, to legitimise itself. It's it's not pleasing artists either, right? So in the months leading up to your piece, there were so many artists, famous and otherwise, who were complaining that they found their pieces listed as NFTs on OpenSea constantly and that the website did nothing about that. Um, they'd have to sort of talk to them and say, please t- get it taken down. It would take some time to get a response. You know, as, as you mentioned, you know, it takes a little while for, for them to process requests. People who listed artwork on the site found that their art was being ripped off and uh, not in a uh, sort of ironic way like the f- real fake apes but very much like just lifting it and trying to sell it um, and it goes so quickly right that it's hard for them to keep track and sometimes art was being sold and it was fake art and uh, someone would have spent a lot of money on it and it's not at all legitimate so um, I suppose my my big question is so why is it that OpenSea's efforts to crack down on art like you know fake apes or real fake apes or other fake and real fake things why is it not appeasing those artists because you think that would play very nicely into into the arguments that they've been making for quite some time i mean this is the kind of question we've been heard about social media platforms for many years right so the motivation is never enough in this case they probably have some point the artists the artists have spoken to simply said that the responses were too slow Sometimes it took up to a week uh, in which uh, that NFT might be sold and more NFT, fake NFTs might be produced. That's one thing. Uh, in s- another thing they told me, and uh, I actually didn't write about it, but I think it's interesting, is that they require um, artists to file a formal uh, copyright infringement complaint, which requires them to uh, disclose their names and notify the offending party. So the plagiarist would receive name and surname, real name and surname of the artist. And artists are reasonably or otherwise a bit worried about being uh, you know, harassed or bullied or whatnot. But in general, uh, it seems everything OpenSea is doing on this front uh, is described by the artist to be too little, too late, too slow, not enough. What they would like to do what they would like OpenSea to do theoretically is to introduce a kind of identity system because what they notice is that the plagiarists plagiarize something, are sometimes removed one week later or whenever, and then they just create a new account with exactly the same plagiarized art. But then again, if you do that, you're going to lose all the Web3 um, hardline pronanimity crowd, right? And so again, you can't have both. You can't, you can't have your cake and eat it to quote a famous politician. (laughs) Right, so no one is pleased. But you mentioned that other competitors may emerge. I think one of the one of the interesting examples is is looks rare right because it basically did offer people that were operating on OpenSea tokens saying oh you know come on over here if you have stuff on OpenSea we'll give you things to compensate you to make it worth your while it's a really interesting kind of maneuver but I do wonder whether the problems that OpenSea has found are problems that would be found on on other platforms anyway uh, basically what I want to know is is this is this ultimately an OpenSea problem or is it an NFT Web3 problem? Could someone else emerge that doesn't have these issues and do it better than OpenSea or is it just going to be all over the place all the time? I think uh, OpenSea was probably a victim of its own success. It's, it grew too quickly, too fast, uh, too much and it wasn't really equipped to, folk, to sort of grapple with these issues but these issues will have a would have emerged anyway, right? Because it is intrinsic to 
to Web3 trying to go in mainstream, which means having to deal with investors, having to deal with uh, possibly regulators, having to deal with uh, other companies such as, Twit as Twitter. Uh, and so at some point, you will have to decide uh, what you want to do in terms of moderation, in terms of um, putting limits on NFT minting and so forth. So yeah, I would say that uh, OpenSea didn't um, didn't uh, act with the required uh, care, with the required attention to detail. It was a bit too rushed. Uh, but in general, yeah, these problems weren't going away. They're just they're just structural. You can't really do much about it. Uh, I suppose you can find a way in the long run. Maybe you can find a way that is both. Uh, decentralized and um, compliant, if you wish. So you might have a DAO structure where by an axiom of fortune or by uh, design, by the rules you uh, enshrine in the DAO initially, you will have a lot of uh, moderation rules um, included from the beginning. I suppose that there is a way to kind of do it, or maybe you can implement a reputation model. So if someone gets a lot of uh, users vote against what it's the user is posting, so a lot of people are going to blacklist a certain user because it only posts plagiarized art or maybe even illegal content. That might work. Uh, so there is a way this could work as a kind of decentralized Web3 company, but the easiest way, of course, uh, as even um, Signal former CEO Moxie Marley Spike said in a famous post, uh, the easiest way to just deal with, it, with it, these issues is adopting a Web2 model, a, a, a current model. So as one of the interviewees uh, from my article said, uh, yeah, Web uh, OpenSea is sort of doomed to act, to, to sell a Web3 product by acting as a Web2 company. Yeah, and some of the things that we've seen OpenSea do are kind of echoing some of the things that we've seen, especially sort of from big tech companies and startups over the last few decades, right? You've got a, um, a company that has grown quite quickly that found itself with a big moderation problem that has found itself suddenly grappling with big security issues. I mean, if that sounds familiar, it's because we've heard it before, right? But one of the one of the things that's interesting about OpenSea is that it's kind of repeated the mistakes of the past, I suppose, from some people's perspective. If you if you look at some of the the things that they've kind of not done, um, whether it's sort of responding to artists or this whole thing about not having a head of security to deal with scams, I mean that that might be seen as sort of easy things that they could have done differently, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the, the, the fact you highlight about the fact that there was no one in, secure, in, in charge of the uh, platform security for, I mean, for many years and the, the, the new head of security was installed like in January, uh, that really reveals that they weren't thinking too much about that aspect of the business. They were mostly thinking about growing and uh, catering to the, the NFT buyers and not really about the shortcomings of that model and what could emerge uh, if they weren't careful enough about stuff like plagiarism but also scams or um, what, whatever. Like some, even stuff like, you might remember that from last year, there was uh, a case of insider trading. So uh, an OpenSea employee who was um, buying NFTs, he knew would be, shortly listed as special offers on OpenSea. So it would 
cash in beforehand in order to then sell them at a higher price. Um, I'm not sure whether that's something a head of security would have dealt with. It might have been something for HR, but certainly there wasn't a lot of um, awareness about all the emerging problems. I, I was literally told by a former employee, well, no, yeah, we didn't really think about it. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's not ideal. Um, so it's so obviously, it's tried to be all things to all people. Now it's put a head of security in place. It's clear that it's failed to please anyone in the measures that it's done so far. So what what happens next? What do you think um, the sort of coming months and years holds for OpenSea? Are we going to see it crumble in the face of potential competitors that rise in its stead? Are we going to see it just become a Web2 platform, as you said, potentially a Web2 platform in a Web3 community? What do you think is going to happen next? So I think... Uh, that Luxray, of course, is a competitor, but if I were OpenSea, I would be much more worried about what companies like Meta would do, right? So, like, if you want to be a Web2 company creating a Web3 product, well, I'm not sure... I mean, you, you might have to compete with Web2 companies, and that may be, like, erstwhile Facebook currently Meta, which is moving into the Metaverse and has explicitly said it wants to to enter the NFT fray. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, of course, I have no intelligence about it at all, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was uh, an offer coming from a Web2 giant. So if OpenSea were bought off by Twitter or uh, Facebook or even Amazon, I think that they should actually keep their eyes peeled on those companies as opposed to Luxray. Luxray will erode its base, um, and that's not great. Uh, because, for instance, I, I was reading this study and I think that 90% of most NFTs, uh, NFT transactions are actually driven by 10% of users. So I would say like hardliners, right? Mostly, or at least enthusiasts. So if you lose that, that's bad. But yeah, uh, I would actually look my, I look actually more at the Web2 incumbents as serious competitors. There's an awful lot of technical detail to unpack here. And if you're sort of dabbling in reading about NFTs and this whole Web3 world for the first time, then there's loads of great detail in Jan's story. And we'll include a link to that in the show notes. And if you've got any thoughts on OpenSea or the rise of NFTs and Web3 or any questions for Jan, get in touch, podcast at wired.co.uk. For our second story this week, Matt, you've been looking into a slightly strange legal question. And to be honest, it's one that I've never really thought about before. So here it is. Is it possible to patent a mammoth? Yeah, that's right, James. It might not have been a question that has occurred to you before, but it's something that I've spent quite a lot of time recently thinking about. So... Our readers might be familiar that this kind of concept of de-extinction, which is basically you know, bringing back an animal that died at some point in the past, you know, went totally extinct. This concept has been around a little while. In fact, I was like, I had a big movie, you know, Jurassic Park in 1993. Uh, there's, you're all around this concept of what would you do if you brought the dinosaurs back to life? And for a really long time, this is something that scientists and you know, non-profits have kind of you know, thought about as an idea, but there wasn't necessarily much money behind it. Now that changed in September last year when a new startup launched. Um, it, was start, it was founded by a guy called Ben Lam, who's a, a kind of tech CEO, a kind of serial entrepreneur, and this Harvard geneticist, George Church. And they'd raised $15 million 
to you know bring this de-extinction effort you know, and make it real. And their whole idea was, let's try and resurrect woolly mammoths. And this is actually extending a kind of project that George Church has been working on for quite a few years. Now, the reason why that got me thinking about this Patterson question is, is because as soon as you start to think about a startup getting involved in de-extinction, you know, a business effort that's in de-extinction, it brings this question of, well, what's the idea? You know, how do you make this, you know, you know how do you make this profitable? Where, where's the money in it? And of course, if you follow that idea, there's this question, is it possible to patent a mammoth? Is that something they'd want to do? Is it something they legally can do? And so I started like looking at this and you quickly realise that this isn't as strange a question as it sounds. And for a start, we're not really talking about Jurassic Park-esque um, levels of scientific breakthroughs. So scientists have already brought an extinct species back to life. So uh, this happened in 20, 2003. And so some Spanish scientists brought this uh, Bicardo, which is kind of a Iberian goat, and they brought it back by cloning it, basically, using cells that were taken from the last living Bicardo that died three years earlier. And they, you know, they inserted it into a cell and they, and they grew that through a kind of surrogate mother, into a new living Bacardo. Now, sadly, that only lived a few minutes, but it did show that it was possible to use cloning to bring back an extinct species. And this happened actually very recently as well. So a couple of years ago, the same technique was used to clone a black-footed ferret. And this is a spirit, uh, species that people thought at one point was completely extinct, and now we just know it's very, very endangered. So the point is, scientifically speaking, this is quite a relevant question, really. I'm still struggling to get over the fact that Jurassic Park came out in 1993. It's that old. Good Lord. All right, so um, even more remarkably, de-extinction is the possible part of the story. It's already happened, in fact. But the real question here, then, is whether you can patent a living animal. So we can, you know, patent machines, inventions, programs, loads of stuff. But living beings? Yeah, exactly. So that's the other part of it. It's like, okay, well scientifically at least theoretically we can do this but if you could do it would you be able to patent it is a a mammoth an invention that someone can own and someone can restrict the rights to use and the answer here is actually kind of similar yes you can patent animals and in fact we've been doing it for ages and ages you know 30 years so to tell this part of the story, I'd like to introduce you to Onco Mouse. And this is a mouse that had been genetically modified. So it pretty much always developed cancer. Not very nice being Onco Mouse or an Onco Mouse. The idea was is that Onco Mouse would be a really good scientific model for testing cancer drugs. Of course, if you want to test cancer drugs or you want to understand how the disease develops, you need an animal model that can reliably um, you know, develop cancer, right? Because then you can say, well, we know it's going to get cancer and we know it develops in this way. And so we can measure exactly how drugs work and how the disease progresses. So really useful scientific tool, although probably not that nice for individual mice. Now, Oncomouse was first made in the early 1980s, and it was you know, through genetic modification, essentially inserting genes using a virus. And in 1988, so a few years after its creation, Harvard University was granted a patent for it. And this is the first patent that had ever been granted for a living animal. Now, genetically modified microorganisms, you know, maybe yeast you'd use for brewing or, you know, that you'd use for creating drugs in pharmaceutical industry, they'd already been patented a few years earlier. So the concept of patenting a living organism was already there, but it's obviously slightly different patenting what people call a, a higher uh, level organism like a mammal or a, you know, a mouse. And what Harvard did is it passed the patent for Onco Mouse onto the funder 
of its research. This was part of a, a deal it had. It said, you fund this research, and then if we ever patent any of the technology that comes out of it, you can own the license to that. And this license went to the chemical firm DuPont. And DuPont went really all in on Oncomouse, this first patentable, ownable, living being. And what they did is they, you know, they made t-shirts to market their invention. They were, you know, they're like, come look at this great thing that we've made. And they sold these mice for $50 a time when other lab mice cost around $5. And this is quite controversial to scientists because they were saying, well, you know, lab animals are a kind of shared creation. We should all be able to use them to, you know, access and do our research. People didn't like the idea and scientists in particular didn't like this idea. Not so much that you could patent a living animal, but that you could restrict the sale of it. And this scientific tool was suddenly, you know, only able uh, to be used by people that would would either, you know, pay this amount or had the license. And they didn't like this restriction of what they saw as these kinds of, you know, shared resources, these lab animals. But really, the Oncomouse uh, you know, story just opened a whole Pandora's box of patenting animals. And now it's pretty common to patent living beings. So almost always these are animals that have been made for lab experiments. So it's stuff like uh, rabbits that have been made so they can uh, you know, be infected by, the, by HIV, you know, that, that kind of thing. So you've got these modified uh, animals that are useful for certain lab experiments. And the key thing here is that all of these animals have had their genomes altered by humans to resemble something that doesn't ordinarily exist in nature. So you wouldn't ordinarily have a mouse that is so susceptible to cancer, so reliably um, develops cancer. And this is the whole point. So because there, there, there were these mice that didn't resemble something that existed, existed in nature, they could be patented. They were inventions. They weren't simply something you could find anywhere. Which brings us to mammoths. So... What does that tell us about the questions that come up when people start asking, can I patent a mammoth if I bring it back to life? You know, this is de-extinction. So is a a reanimated, de-extincted mammoth an invention or is it a product of nature? Exactly. And this is a really, really crucial question because I can't... um look at a tree and take some of the seeds for that tree and say, look, I own this tree and I own the right to you know, sell this tree or breed this tree because I've got these seeds from somewhere. I've, I found them. I can't find a creative microorganism and say, I found this microorganism. I own it. That's not how patenting works. You can't patent something that just exists, exists in nature. It's meant to protect people that have you know, put money and resources into developing something new, inventing something new, not merely discovering something. So that legal distinction is really, really important. Is a de-extinct mammoth something that exists in nature or is it something that humans have invented? Now, this is why the specific techniques I mentioned earlier when I was talking about the black-footed ferret and the bocado that have been brought to life via cloning, those specific techniques start to really matter a lot because what happens in cloning is you essentially take the DNA from an animal cell in the case of the Bacardo, that was a, a cell that had been taken a few years earlier and it had been frozen. So it could be alive or dead. It doesn't really matter. You take the DNA out of that cell, um, actually the whole nucleus really, out of that cell, and you put it inside a fertilised egg of either the same or a similar species, basically an animal that can carry this uh, new kind of 
egg to term. So instead of creating a new animal, what you've really done is created a copy of a previously existing animal. So that black-footed ferret that, that existed, it was actually a copy of a ferret that was alive in the 1980s, but it had its uh, DNA frozen. That Bricardo that came back to life, it was actually a copy of that animal that you know died in the year 2000. So the way that the law sees these animals is they're not inventions, they are merely you know, a, a recreation of nature. And in fact, we know this and we know how patent law applies to this exact situation because I'm sure listeners will be really familiar with Dolly the sheep. This was the first cloned mammal, goes back way back to 1996 and some researchers in, in Edinburgh. So Dolly's creators actually tried to patent their sheep, but they were turned down because Dolly was the genetic replica, you know, the genetic duplicate in reality, of an existing sheep. And this actually caused a really long uh, patent and legal battle. And it only really con- concluded in 2013, and a US Court of Appeals judge you know, ended the fight, and they said, Dolly's genetic identity to her donor parent renders her unpatentable. Essentially, in the eyes of the law, Dolly is a duplication, she's not an invention, and that means you simply cannot patent something that's been made by cloning. So that rules out cloning, um, in terms of, you know, could you patent an animal de-extincted through cloning? But that isn't the only way we might de-extinct an animal. And in fact, it's not even the most likely way we might de-extinct an animal, at least looking at current efforts. So this company that I mentioned earlier on that's co-founded by that you know, famous Harvard geneticist, it's called Colossal. What they're doing is they're trying to resurrect the woolly mammoth, but they're not cloning the woolly mammoth. We don't have enough surviving mammoth DNA to be able to do that. You need a complete genome to be able to clone uh, an animal, and we we really don't have complete mammoth genomes. You have you know lots of separate bits that you can put together to create a full picture, but we don't have one uh, nucleus that contains all the genetic information that you could pop into an egg. So instead, what Colossal want to do and you know, other people are doing the same thing with other species, is they want to take an Asian elephant, which is more or less the closest living relative to the mammal, uh, the mammoth, and edit that genome so it more closely resembles their ancient, hairier cousins, the mammoth. So the way to think about it is it's like they've, they will have created an Asian elephant with a few mammoth genes stuck in there. So it's a really hairy Asian elephant, or it's a really kind of pretty chubby Asian elephant, or it's an Asian elephant that can, you know, thrive in the, uh, uh, you know, in the cold. So Colossal actually calls these functional mammoths or Arctic elephants. And the key thing here is we're not talking about duplications of nature. We're talking about a human creation, essentially. Okay, two questions. Um, One of them takes us back to Jurassic Park. Why would you want to bring them back? And why would you need to patent them? What would be the purpose of that patent? Yeah, and this is this is the question, really. I mean, the first one is, why would you need to bring them back? And that, that is like a, it's a really uh, hot topic in the conservation community, because people say, well, why bring back uh, woolly mammoths that haven't existed for 4,000 years? Most of them haven't existed for 11,000 years. Why bring them back into a world that is completely changed, that they don't exist in anymore? It's not even fair to the creatures, and it might not even be useful. You know, we don't know what might happen to these mammoths. And the argument is... Now, at least, there's a few different strands for this, right? On one level, I think underneath this all is it's kind of cool, right? People think it's cool to bring back a woolly mammoth, to do something that no one's done before and to especially do something that has been, you know, this huge scientific challenge and this thing that, you know, science fiction and films have all been written about. But really the justification 
now is not so much, oh, it's a big challenge, we may as well do it just because we can. It's all about this, this idea of, you know, ecosystem services and restoring um, animals to their ecosystem. So what Colossal wants to do with its woolly mammoths or its functional mammoths or its arctic ele- uh, elephants, whatever you want to call them, is it wants to put them in this park called Pleistocene Park, which is a part of Siberia that has been set aside. And what uh, conservationists have been doing is reintroducing uh, big animals like bison and, and elk and animals like that because they have a really important role in how they kind of trample down and eat vegetation and essentially restore this um, type of uh, ecosystem that was called the kind of mammoth step or you know this, this kind of specific type of ar- arctic ecosystem and, and the reason they want to do that is because they think it might be really important for helping that ecosystem store carbon so it turns it into kind of grasslands instead of what we have at the moment which is a kind of frozen tundra so this is the argument it's saying if we bring these animals back we can restore these ecosystems to what they used to be uh, before humans started messing around in them and that a that kind of you know keeps the ecosystem more healthy b it kind of restores a kind of um natural justice that exist existed before humans were there so that's the kind of conservation argument for doing that and actually a lot of people say well why bring a mammoth if you can just have you know elk or some other animal that can do it you can just put another animal in there probably that exists now and can serve a similar role but certainly that's the justification that's being made and then on to your second point which is well if you're going to do that that's like doing something that's good for the world, right? Why would you need to patent it? Why would you need to make money from it? And I, you know, I put this question to Colossal's CEO, this guy called um, Ben Lam. And to start with, he was pretty confident that they could patent this elephant-mammoth hybrid. Now, he didn't say we can patent it and we're going to do it. But he said, you know, we have good lawyers. We've taken legal advice around this. We're pretty sure that if we wanted to, we could patent the whole genome of this mammoth. But that's not really the business model that Colossal seems to be going for. So Lamb talked about being more interested in patenting other technologies they might develop along the way. So they think they're probably going to have to grow these mammoths in artificial wombs. That could be really interesting for premature babies or all kinds of scientific research, in fact. And certainly it might take some gene editing breakthroughs in, in order to do this. And, and we've seen other um, breakthroughs related to CRISPR be patented as well. So we know there's lots of uh, fertile space when it comes to patenting breakthroughs yeah, in terms of um, you know, CRISPR and gene editing and things like that. And, and, and then there's this other part of it, which is patent- um, de-extincting animals is super expensive. No one has really managed to do it successfully, for, uh, certainly for an ancient animal like a, a mammoth. And if you want people to do it, well, you're going to have to incentivize them and say, well, you do it, you put the effort into it, maybe you can own your creation. That's kind of why patenting exists, to give people the incentive to, you know, try things and fail and make inventions because you say, if you do it and you take that risk and you're right, you know, and you, you succeed, well, you get to own that at the end of it, at least for the 20 years or so that a patent lasts. Of course, it doesn't really matter what Ben Lamb thinks or what I think, because at the end of the day, all that matters is, is a patent granted and does a court decide whether that stands or not? And this is why you have to go back to Oncomouse and, and you know, look at these kind of things and say, well, what does the kind of legal landscape suggest about what might happen if someone did try and patent a mammoth? And if you look at the Oncomouse case, well, it kind of suggests that an animal that is 
uh, edited by humans. So it has some DNA uh, that resembles nature, but some other DNA, or certainly in this combination, that doesn't resemble nature. It suggests that is something that's patentable. And a lot of legal scholars have actually, a, a lot more people have written about this in like lengthy legal texts than you might expect. And a lot of people agree with that, essentially. They point to Onko Mouse and say, well, look, if you can say this is an invention that doesn't exist and wouldn't exist in nature otherwise, well, you know, that's something that has a history of being patented. We think that's okay. Now, one lawyer I spoke with wasn't so sure. And they said, they pointed out that in 2014, there was this case around this genetic testing firm called uh, Myriad. And what this genetic testing firm had tried to do was um, patent two genes that we know are strongly linked to cancer in humans. So there's kind of, there's this BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene. And we know if you have this gene, you are more likely to develop, uh, I think it's certainly breast cancer, I think also ovarian cancer as well. And what they wanted to do was patent those human genes and say only we can develop the tests for you know working out if someone has this gene so the idea is if um someone went to the doctor and said in the us at least i want to find out if i've got BRCA genes um you could only use this myriad technology test because they exclusively owned the rights to those genes now in 2014 uh the us supreme court basically ruled you can't do that you cannot a patent a human gene that already exists in nature. And this threw out all kinds of other patents that already existed. And their argument was, a bit like what I said about finding the tree, you can't just point at a gene and say, oh, I found that gene, I own it now, I have the rights over it. And the lawyer I spoke to, a guy called Andrew Torrance, suggested that this might have implications for the elephant-mammoth hybrid. Because Although you probably couldn't look at the whole genome and say, well, that exists somewhere in nature because it doesn't, it never has. Um, you could point to individual genes and say, well, that gene comes from an Asian elephant. That does, that does, that does. And that gene, well, that's exactly like a gene we found in a mammoth. So if the, all the individual attributes are something you could find in nature, perhaps that is something that may not be able to be patented. So there's this kind of implication that actually if all the constituent parts are found in nature, it would be very hard to patent those genes at least, and it might be very hard to patent the whole organism. There's also this other part, which is in the EU, um, you can kind of be denied a patent on moral grounds. So they can basically say, fair enough, could patent it. I don't think that's okay to do. And we, we know that because the EU patent office approved Oncomouse, but they turned down this, this kind of quite funny mouse that was bald that had been invented to test hair loss treatments. And they were basically like, oh, Oncomouse, yeah, that's totally fine. But this bald mouse, yeah, we don't think that's cool. You know, it's not okay to invent and patent a mouse that's, you know, been made to test hair loss treatments. The only way we can find out is when someone tries to patent it, though. It's quite reassuring that in this very sort of sci-fi sphere, where there are a lot of complicated ethical questions about how far we want to go as human beings over, you know, having control over nature, that the law is quite sensible and reasonable and looks at these things and judges them based on their usefulness or you know, coming down to that point, you, you kept going back to of pointing at a gene and saying, well, that one's mine, that there are these protections in place that are hopefully going to ensure that even though the technology might be there to do it, there might not be the justification to do it on those terms. It's a really, really fascinating story. And there's tons more detail in the written version. Head to the show notes and we'll include a link to it there, podcast at wired.co.uk. If you have any questions about that, or anything else that we talked about on the show this week. Now, before my voice completely gives out, Matt, you've been in the podcast inbox this week. What did you find? 
Yeah, I got a couple of emails from readers, and this is about this story about gravity storage, storing energy by lifting big blocks really high and then eventually dropping them. And Haley wrote in with a couple of thoughts. Uh, they asked, how noisy are the gravity storage block shifting towers? Well, I was near them, Haley, and I have to say, not noisy at all, actually. I, I, I guess it's like similar to being near a crane, lifting something up. Um, yeah, really, really wasn't noisy. And in fact, when they do this kind of version that will be within these big buildings, I would imagine it's not, not that noisy. And certainly, quite often it might be next to a mine or it might be next to some kind of other facility. Probably isn't the noisiest thing um, in the local vicinity. Haley also wrote in to say, you know, I, talking about a problem that I'd heard about in this reporting, actually, which is you know, one of these problems with lithium-ion batteries is that, you know, they're a risk in terms of, you know, fire and, you know, people are maybe not sure about like the safety of having loads and loads of lithium batteries uh, altogether, which is, is a really, really good point. And actually, that's one reason that people say, well, maybe uh, gravity storage might work in cer- certain circumstances. So that's definitely um, something I didn't really get into a bunch in the piece. But some of these downsides of lithium are definitely something that people that are interested in gravity storage are pointing to and are saying, well, maybe it solves some of those problems in certain circumstances. And then the other email was from Roman. And Roman writes in saying, been a big fan of yours since uh, since years over here in Switzerland. That's good. Glad to hear it, Roman. And Roman pointed to this interesting technology that I wasn't familiar with, but was from the University of Dresden. And this is basically a kind of flywheel in a vacuum tube. And essentially, it takes very little friction to accelerate to a really, really uh, high speed. And And what you can do is kind of you can use this flywheel and then utilise this energy off this flywheel to then uh, basically kind of create electricity again. And actually, I hadn't come across this exact form, but I know that flywheels themselves are thought about as a very useful electric, you know, electric storage uh, mechanism for doing that very short-term electricity shifting that I talked about. If you need loads of power in a really short amount of time, flywheels are something that a lot of people say, well, maybe they could solve exactly that requirement. So um, thank you, Roman, and thank you, Haley, for writing with your, with your thoughts about electricity storage podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with the show and thanks for everybody who writes in right let's leave it there um before we're, we're recording this right in the middle of uh, storm Eunice, which has blown down most of the bins on my road uh, during the hour that we've been, we've been recording outrage. and my voice is just about to finally finally disappear but so outrage. stay safe have a good week <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be back again next week take care bye-bye bye bye, bye. bye.